Welcome, everybody, to the G3X Conversation with Ken Wilcox on his new book, Leading Through Culture, and his experiences leading a key Silicon Valley bank, financing innovations in technology, as well as the opening of a joint venture bank with China. His experience marrying finance with innovation has many implications for our sector. His experience working through cultures is also very much part of our sector. And we're thrilled to have him speak at G3X. Mr. Wilcox currently serves as Emeritus Chairman of Silicon Valley Bank and was Vice President of uh, SPD Silicon Valley Bank. He was previously the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank Financial Group, SBV Financial Group. Um, Mr. Wilcox is chairman of the board of the Asia Society of Northern California, treasurer of the Asian Art Museum, and a member of the advisory board for the 21st Century China Center Advisory Board. So he has some nonprofit experience as a board member as well. Uh, earlier in his career, Mr. Wilcox was a member of the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco from 2006 to 2012. So you served with Janet Yellen in, in that. I did, as a matter of fact, yeah. Yeah, our, our new uh, treasury secretary. So um, <laughs> Mr. Wilcox earned his master's degree in business administration from Harvard Business School. I don't know if any of you ever heard of this little tiny school somewhere in Massachusetts, as well as a PhD in German studies from Ohio State University. So with that, welcome. Ken Wilcox, and I'm sure you all have applause emojis you can break out for him. <laughs> so Thanks. I'm sure they're all enthusiastically applauding. You just can't hear it because they're muted, Ken. <laughs> Welcome to 501c3BS, busting the myths of the social sector and deprogramming you for organizational growth. Brought to you by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University, Fullerton, College of Business and Economics, celebrating our 25th anniversary year in 2021. I'm Zoot Velasco, director of the Gianneschi, and your host for this podcast journey. Ken, why did you write this book? <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I wrote this book because in, um, so I've been in uh, banking for about 35 years or so, and the bank that I've worked with for most of that time is called Silicon Valley Bank. And the truth is most people have never heard of it. It's actually a pretty big bank. It's one of the biggest banks in the US and we're one of the only US banks that actually has a global aspirations, meaning we're, we're located around the globe, not just in the US and we're across the US. But unless you were in a technology company and probably in finance in a technology company, you might never have heard of us because all of our clients are technology companies, mostly, um, smaller ones, startups, but sometimes bigger ones as well. If they start with us and they get big, we do our best to keep them. In any case, uh, in the year 2001, I became CEO. And I think it was a big surprise. Uh, certainly it was a surprise for me and it was a surprise for a lot of other people too. One of my best friends who ended up on the board later on, actually, when he heard the announcement, he called me up and he said, congratulations. Uh, he said, you're the least likely person for that job. <laughs> and in a way, he, he, he meant it as a joke, obviously, but in a way, I think he was semi-serious because I was not the most obvious candidate uh, by any means. And of course, I was overjoyed. The whole idea of being CEO is, you know, everybody wants to be in a leadership position at some point. And in point of fact, 
most people end up at one level or another in a leadership position at some point in their life. So at, uh, my joy, though, at being made into the CEO lasted about five minutes because it took me only about five minutes to realize that I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't sure what to do. What does a CEO do exactly now that I've got the job? And it's actually quite a bit different, I think, than most people would think. I think most people who want to be in a, a position of leadership uh, usually look forward to it because they think, oh, yeah, this is my opportunity. I can make all the decisions. I can make the things happen I always wanted, wanted to see happen. But the truth is, um, it's one thing to be CEO, and it's another thing to actually uh, lead people and get people moving in a direction. So uh, after my uh, panic subsided, I decided I'd better figure this out quick. So I talked to as many other CEOs as I could, and I started reading books quickly, and I got a coach. And in, the, in time, I think I started to do a, a pretty good job, but it took a while. And uh, along the way, of course, I did a lot of experimentation. I'd try this and see if it worked. And if it didn't, I'd try something else and see if it worked. And then I started keeping notes. And uh, every night I'd write down some of the events of the day and how things worked. And over time, I collected several hundred pages of notes. So when I retired uh, just a little while ago, I decided that I would take a look at those notes and uh, they were so interesting to me that I just decided to write this book. And my belief is that it's not really a book for people that are going to be CEO. It's a book for anybody who might end up in a leadership position. And I think, as I said, uh, many, many, many people end up in a leadership position of one sort or another. Um, sometimes it's, it's being, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the team leader on their work team, or other times it's some kind of a position in a church, or it's in a not-for-profit, or it's at a school or a church. It's, it's, it's almost anywhere. But the, the, the principles, I think, are applicable across the board. So anyway, that's why I wrote this. Well, I loved your emphasis in your book. I mean, one thing that sets your book apart from many other leadership books, and I teach leadership, so I read a lot of leadership books, um, and I've taken a lot of leadership courses, but the th one of the things I liked about your book that it was really about culture and creating a culture um, at an organization as a big part of leadership. And you talk about this saga of, of working in China. And it, by the way, that's a really interesting story about how you did this joint venture in China um, by their rules, of course, because you're in a, in a, a authoritative country, but, um, you had these great, uh, this great kind of checklist you do when you're working cross-culturally to see, are my stories and analogs going to translate in this culture? Um, do I need to change up my negotiating style? Are there cross-cultural teams that are going to get their responsibilities and wins done? Um, you know, secession planning, do I understand compromise in the situation? And this is great that you're asking yourself these questions. And it just made me think that that translates not just to working in a different culture, but also in a different age group um, here in the United States. And I'm wondering if you've ever had any experience with that, where you've had to check yourself in this way, working with a different age group. Yes. Um, in fact, let me give you just a couple of examples that illustrate uh, my answers to these uh, different questions. I think that um, 
one of the interesting things about China, and one, one of the reasons that I so enjoyed the experience, what happened was when I retired from being CEO, uh, just at that point in time, our bank got word from Beijing that the Chinese government wanted us to come over and build a bank. Uh, and that was sort of a watershed event because that never happens. Um, it's very, very difficult to get a banking license in China, almost an impossibility. It was the sort of thing that we couldn't really turn down. Um, and yet when we looked around, uh, tried to find somebody who had a couple thousand employees at the time, there was almost nobody who wanted to go to China. Um, not so much that they were anti-China, but more that they didn't want to pull up stakes and move their entire family into a, a culture that was so different. But that was actually the fascination for me and my wife. I talked to my wife about it and she said, you know, this is something we can't turn down. This is something we absolutely have to do. This is a huge opportunity. So we volunteered and uh, we left at the beginning of 2011 and came back four years later. My wife focused um, on culture and art and I focused on building the bank. And the fascinating part about China for me is not just that it's different, but that it's so different. It, it's, in my experience anyway, the most different culture that we could possibly move to. And one of the things that I learned was uh, the difficulty of communications in uh, a situation in which um, the people that you're working with and communicating with have such a different cultural background. So just a, a couple of illustrations of what I'm referring to. When, when we, um, it took us about a year to set up our bank and shortly before we opened our doors, uh, the, the person who had been working on the build out for the um, office space wanted to show me uh, the plans. He uh, spread it out on a table the blueprint and I looked uh, at it and I was absolutely shocked because it turned out that my office was took up about 25% of the entire floor plan. I thought, how is this going to work? We're going to have a couple hundred people and my office is going to comprise 25% of the floor plan. And not only that, but my office had two parts to it. It was where I sit. And then in addition to that, it was um, my bedroom. And I just couldn't believe it. Why do I need a bedroom? Well, it turns out that I needed that much space, at least according to my uh, Chinese colleagues, because uh, China is a very hierarchical country. And the amount of space that you have is an indication of your, your value and your importance. And if I were to have a small office, it would definitely throw into question uh, how important I was. And uh, the other thing that amazed me was the fact that half of it was a bedroom. And that, of course, has a different origin. Uh, uh, there's a line through China, an imaginary line. And below that line, the weather's generally warmer as a result of which, in order to save on fuel, historically, nobody's been allowed to um, uh, turn up the furnace. Whereas above the line, it's correspondingly colder and uh, people are allowed to turn up the furnace. And so the result was that uh, it's always a little cold there in winter and um, people need to take a nap after lunch. And so uh, I needed the big bedroom in order to take a nap. And I asked what happens to all the other people? And they said, well, all the other people 
are just going to put their heads down on their table and uh, take a quick nap. So there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of how different uh, China is, and it really has an impact on the way that people um, interface with each other. So Azut, you're talking about age groups. Um, of course, if you just think about our lives here in the United States, you'd have to admit that people in their 50s often or 60s often have a different outlook on life than people in their 30s or 40s. And, um, and people in their 20s and 30s may have yet a different outlook. And of course, that's true around the world. But in China, it's even more true because um, so many extremely important things, uh, earth-shattering things, have taken place in China in the past 70 years. And each decade, so to speak, each if a decade represented a generation, each decade of people has a different attitude toward life. And so if you're talking to people that were born in, let's say, the 50s, it's a totally different experience and they have a totally different set of expectations than people who were born, let's say, in their uh, 80s. And that would actually be true for every 10 years. Often Chinese will describe the world to outsiders by, um, by talking about the people in their 50s and what they think, the people in their, uh, excuse me, born in the 50s and what they think, people born in the 60s and what they think, and on down the line. One thing I get out of this so far is that I need to put into my contracts that I need a bedroom and a nap every, everywhere I go now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, you, you talked in your book about secession planning. That was one of the things that you ticked off there, but you talk about it elsewhere in your book as well. And I think that great leaders make you know other great leaders. I think that's part of leadership. But I find that it's hard to really plan succession because in our line of work where we work with a with a not-for-profit board um, that board can override your plans at any time and often do so how do you keep control of secession planning or do you just resign that you don't have control of it yeah well to a certain extent in life we do have to resign ourselves to the fact that we can't control everything for sure and of course i couldn't control who was going to be my successor uh, not 100% anyway, but here's an interesting thing. It's rare. I actually picked my successor as CEO before I myself became CEO. And that's a kind of an oddity that almost never happens in life. But there was a, a guy who was reporting to me when I was chief banking officer, and he was in charge of um, our office in, in Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado. And he just so impressed me. I thought, this guy this guy really should be leading something big someday. And I said, if I ever get to be CEO, I'm going to, I'm going to groom him to be my successor. And so I did. And I, I told him that about two or three years into it. And he rose to the occasion. And then the question was, um, how am I going to get him there? Because I was CEO for 10 years. So I, uh, I just went out of my way to give him opportunities to grow and to demonstrate uh, his abilities. And then I showcase those in front of the board. I will say it was, uh, it was, uh, it has its high points and its low points. There were years in which he did better in the board's eyes and years in which he did less well in the board's eyes. But as time went on, the uh, times when he uh, showcased well, 
uh, ended up being more frequent in the times when he didn't quite so much, which is true of anybody, uh, ended up uh, being less frequent. And of course, when we got down to the end, uh, after uh, because about two years before my 10-year plan was, was uh, coming to an end, uh, everybody got involved, everybody on the board got involved in this whole idea of who's going to be Ken's successor. And there are a number of people on the board who were just philosophically uh, committed to the notion that you have to look outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I couldn't I'm exactly tell them that they were dead wrong, although I felt that way. But I do feel that, uh, as the book indicates, the title of the book indicates that cultures are extremely important. And I think it's very hard to successfully bring an outsider who's never ex- lived in the culture or experienced the culture into an organization and expect that they can be at least initially successful as the a leader of that organization because they're so unfamiliar with the culture, they're not of it and didn't grow up in it. You know, but- I think... I think that rings true in our organizations as well. I mean, our board, our boards often want to bring in outside candidates when a CEO is leaving and they don't always realize the value of, of somebody internal who could take over. I, th- I find that to be true a lot. And I find it, it's one of the problems that we have in terms of diversity, because um, we, we are doing a CEO training program that I lead. And the whole purpose of that originally was because when somebody leaves an organization, the first thing they do is they hire a headhunter to go look for an outside, you know, somebody with a Stanford resume to replace them. And they don't ever look at the internal candidates. And we wanted to give people who are internal um, some kind of training in being a CEO that they could say, look, you should consider me because a lot of times those internal candidates are women and people of color that would not normally get the nod, um, you know, if they didn't have something on their resume to show that they, they, they've had some training in this. And so that's why we started our training. But I find like I teach um, students and I find a lot of um, you know, female students are reluctant to speak up in class. And I'm always trying to encourage our female students to speak up more because when I was a CEO, I know that the men who worked under me were asking for a raise every, every month. You know, when am I going to get my raise? I, I, I'm so good and I'm so great. And the, the women that worked under me would almost never ask for a raise and often did a better job than some of the men that worked under me. So there's this this whole thing that I think is inbred in our culture that, you know, that uh, men are often overconfident and women are often uh, undervaluing themselves in terms of what they bring to the table. And it's, it, it kind of helps the divide that we have culturally. What do well, you, you know, think about I'll that? Let me just jump on your bandwagon here because I would agree with what you said totally. Uh, I would even carry it one tiny step further and, and say that even if all the people in your organization were the same gender, let's say it was an organization with only women in it, there are going to be some women that are more comfortable speaking out and some that are less comfortable and some that are more aggressive and some that are less aggressive. And I think we have a bias in our culture, not just a gender bias, but we also have an, what I'd call aggression bias that we tend to associate being aggressive with being the best and yes. being the smartest. And you know, there's a there's a, a legitimate argument that it could be possibly the other way around, actually. I have never seen any positive correlation between how pushy people are and how smart they are. 
And if anything, and maybe I'm exaggerating a tad to make a point, but if anything, it's almost the other way around that, you know, some of the smartest people, some of the, the people who would do the best job are, are less uh, pushy and are, they, they have a quiet confidence that doesn't require uh, constant confirmation of their superiority. Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with you on that too. We will continue next week with part two of Ken Wilcox and his book about leading through culture. Please join us. Thank you to the Gene Eshi Center for Nonprofit Research, California State University, Fullerton, and the College of Business and Economics for supporting our podcast. Our supporters include the Orange County Community Foundation, Southern California Gas Company, and you, our listeners. Thanks for the music provided to us by the California-based Brazilian Coro Ensemble, Grupo Falso Baiano. Have a great week, free from BS. Ken Wilcox's book, Leading Through Culture, How Real Leaders Create Cultures That Motivate People to Achieve Great Things, is available at Amazon. Amazon.